Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by Smart Logic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore, Maryland. My name is Justice Epen, and I'll be your host today. I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Ostrich. And this season, we're talking about system and application architecture. So we're joined by a very special guest, none other than the host of Elixir Fountain, Johnny Wynn. How are you, Johnny? Good. How's everybody doing today? I'm doing lovely. How about you, Eric? Great. <laughs> Actually, I, I, I take that back. I should say greetings, everyone, because that's how I go into the show. So. <laughs> oh, oh, that's nice. Yeah, bring it here. We're glad to have you on the show. We love having fellow podcasters on the show. We wanted to start off with sort of an interesting personal question because we like to stalk all of our guests and our research on you before the show. We found that CodeSync calls you a renaissance man. Now, I know what that is, but maybe not everyone in the audience does. So could you tell us what a renaissance man is and what makes you one of these? <laughs> I like to say it's like jack of all trades, master of none. You know, <laughs> I've just done a lot of things. I came from Jacksonville, Florida, and, you know, I started out, I didn't take the traditional path into code. You know, I was in the restaurant business cooking in gourmet restaurants. I actually worked my way up to an interim head chef at one point. My wife and kids like to joke that I've done pretty much every job out there. You know, did computer-aided drafting and design signal crossings for a while. Those are the two big ones before I got into software engineering. But I also ran for city council back in Florida, mm. played semi-pro rugby, you know, pretty much run the gamut of just things you can do. My wife always gives me a hard time too because she's like, I'm like, oh, I want to do that when I grow up. And she's like, ah, oh, you've done all the things. <laughs> you don't have to do all the things. So I love this because I'm also, the fashionable word for this these days is a flaneur. Do you know this word? No. So flaneur is a nice way of calling someone a dilettante. A flaneur is someone who kind of wanders around aimlessly, but in an Google enjoyable way. Google says an idler or lounger. Yeah. <laughs> well, a friend of mine actually back in high school and I'm just going to preface this with, yes, yeah. I've actually been diagnosed with ADHD. I have a very short attention span on a lot of things, but I also get very hyper-focused on things. So, like, there's a whole sort of world of good and bad that goes with that. But a friend of mine in high school once told me that, you know, he had read this article about what's called the cat lifestyle. Mm. And then when you think about a cat, they tend to play with something until they're bored and then they go on and find something else to do. And that kind of translates to people. You do something until you're bored and then you go do something else. Like the idea for me, you know, I came from a background where both of my parents went to college, got jobs, worked in those jobs for, you know, 30 years, retired. And that was the thing. My wife had the same type of background. And so when we got together, it was really weird that like, you know, I worked somewhere for a couple of years and then I would go do something else. And then I would work mm -hmm. from somewhere. But I mean, by that time, you know, I was already a, in software engineering, but that's pretty much what I've done is like, you know, I was working in culinary until I yeah, got bored. I, I wanted to dive into the culinary thing a little bit because we've had a few people on the show with culinary interests. And I'm curious, I have a feeling that there is some expertise in our audience, but not a ton. And I'm wondering if you had to tell people like, what are like, one or two dishes that you think that like everybody should know how to make and maybe perfect. Mm. And if you have any tips for okay. like, how to make them really well. Yeah. It's funny as 
I can't remember what. Oh, I think it was Code Beam San Francisco this year. Yeah. Or Code Seek San Francisco. I had actually given a lightning talk on how to cook the perfect steak. And as long as y'all don't tell anybody, I will tell y'all how to cook the perfect steak. So we won't tell anyone. Okay. Just, just <laughs> keep it that way. So what I do is I get to the butcher shop and I get, you know, filet mignon or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then when I bring it home about an hour before I'm ready to grill it, I coat it in kosher salt. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, really coat it in kosher salt. Meaning uh, coarse grain, like really coarse yeah, grain salt. Yeah. Right. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And leave it on a tray to just basically sit out for about an hour. Right. And what you'll see is you'll see that the salt almost kind of disappears a little bit mm-hmm. because what ends up happening is the salt, people's like, Oh, what is that going to take all the moisture out? Well, what happens is, is when you let it sit for an hour, it actually sucks the juices out, mm-hmm. but then brings them back in, but takes the salt with them. Mm-hmm. So you literally season the entire steak all the way through. Mm-hmm. So then right before I'm going to grill it, I wash all the kosher salt off and I pat them dry so that they're dry again. And then I start the grilling process. Obviously, that's going to depend on how you like your steaks cooked, the temperature wise. You know, but I do the two minutes about roughly and then quarter turn, two minutes about roughly, flip, two minutes about roughly. But the other little secret is, and I use grass fed, the Kerrygold butter. I melt butter and some granulated garlic in it. And then I base the steaks as a grill. <laughs> yeah, dude. It melts in your mouth like butter. You're speaking my language, man. Do you, oh, it's so good. And so if you're going to get grass-fed steak from a butcher, it's always dry-aged, like 21 days or something, I'm sure, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, but the thing about this technique is, is you could actually use any cut of steak. Mm-hmm. The salt will kind of tenderize the meat somewhat too. And then when you baste it in that butter, and really in like gourmet restaurants, what they do is they'll grill it. And they'll finish it with a pat of butter mm. and you know stick it in any type of oven just to melt the butter onto right. the steak. But when you baste it, you kind of get it all a little bit at a time. And so, yeah, yeah definitely worth it. But just don't tell anybody because everybody will be cooking my steaks here soon. So. Oh, Johnny, you're speaking my language. We could spend this whole show talking about steaks, I think. What's funny about it, though, is, is this steak that I spend so much time cooking and preparing. Yeah. My favorite side dish for it. Mm-hmm is Kraft Macaroni and Cheese Deluxe. Oh, you don't even go to Annie's? No, no. I go to Kraft Macaroni and Cheese. Uh, do you know that, that cheese sauce that really shouldn't be in existence? Yeah, put that on. Oh, man. That's, that's so the cool. like Velveeta type exactly. cheese whiz yeah, type yeah. thing, right? Velveeta is so underrated. It's, but it's so good. You know? I think American cheese is underrated too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like when people have to put like fancy cheese on a cheeseburger. I'm like, you don't know how to make burgers, man. Cause the best yeah. burgers are just American cheese. Well, and two, when I make burgers, so yeah. the trick to making a good burger is don't give this one away. I know it already, but don't give it away. No, I'm just kidding. Tell it. Tell the you you <laughs> gotta have the, you gotta have fresh ground beef. Okay. Mm-hmm. You can't have like the vacuum sealed. Like my wife will be like, Oh, we've got ground beef. I'm like, I can't make burgers with that. It's vacuum sealed because the right. meat kind of mushes. So right. you, you want the air. fresh can and mm. you don't want to touch it very much. You just right. kind of want to make it patty the and then put a dimple in it. Like yeah. with your thumb, just kind of put a little dimple in it and stick it in the freezer for a bit uh, and then bring it out. And when so you you're talking it about on the grill burgers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. You don't really. do smash burgers. Like the, the restaurant, the smash burger. So smash burgers are when you like make a ball out of the meat. 
And when you stick it on a hot griddle and you smash uh, it down, yeah, and that's no. how like you get that Shake Shack like crispy. Yeah. I do love yeah. me some Shack, dude. Yeah, we should do a cooking show. We need to get Sunday Mint on, and we could do a live stream one day where we all just do like our favorite recipes. Well, I, and I, it's funny as I thought about that. Like, so I did the Elixir Fountain for like three years. Right. I think it was like three or four years or something. We can talk about Elixir Fountain. Yeah, let's, let's get to there. Well, no, I'm only going to briefly mention it because yeah. part of the thing was, is I felt like I was having kind of similar conversations over and over again. Uh-huh. I'm like, and I liked having the conversations, but I hated feeling the routine of it. Mm-hmm. Like having to get up and have that conversation. Because there's a lot of times, you know, hey, like talking to y'all, let's talk food. Let's talk <laughs> There's so much more to life than than coding. And yeah. I feel like sometimes it was like kind of, it almost became a job rather than just fun. But there is not much more to life than food. This is true. <laughs> food to get by. Oh my gosh. So, so steak, I really like this. First of all, uh, quality beef and steak or burgers is sort of a game changer. Go to a butcher, like find your local butcher people, grass-fed beef, dry-aged beef. If you're not buying grass-fed beef exclusively, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. I mean, that's understandable if you're not because, I mean, there is, it can get pricey. Yeah. But when you want to cook to impress, like, okay, here's a funny story. Yeah, Yeah, go ahead. So my wife knew she was going to marry me when I cooked a dish for her. Uh-huh. So I had her over for dinner. This is, you know, we had maybe our second or third date. Yeah. And I cooked like a chicken roulade with, you know, you basically you pound out the chicken and then you kind of roll it up into a roulade with, I put like Swiss cheese and ham and some spinach in there, rolled it up. Mm-hmm. And then what you do is, is you roll it in plastic wrap mm-hmm. so that it, and stick it in the freezer for a bit, bring it out, and then you roll it in some flour and you pan fry it in butter and then finish it in the oven. And she was like, right then, I knew, I knew I was going to marry you. So, see, being able to cook and at least have a couple specialty dishes is yeah. very important. These days, if you like had to just knock someone's socks off, like the president or something was coming over to your house for dinner, maybe not the president, you know, someone that you really highly admire and respect was coming over for dinner, what would you make them? Hmm. I'm trying to think, because these days I'm really into smoking meats. Yeah. And and yeah. I love smoking pork shoulder. What do you use to smoke? Apple. The apple. Are you using like a smoker or like a Weber oh, yeah. or something like that? Yeah. I have an actual smoker, but I used to have an electric smoker. Uh-huh. And honestly, I like the electric smoker better than the. And this is, I think, maybe somewhat laziness. Uh-huh. I know that everybody that smokes meat out there is going to tell me I'm an awful person. But like controlling the temperature is really hard when you're having to completely burn the material like in but with the electric smoker you just put wood chips in there and you set it to the temperature that you want and then it'll you know it'll slowly smoke the meat and everything's great yeah but the trick to a good smoked pork shoulder and really anything that you're cooking long term is the brine that you use of course yep i have a super secret brine super secret brine all right yeah. you tell us your super secret brine we, we won't talk salt about as long as you can water <laughs> so well, no, it's not just the salt and the water and the sugar. I use coconut sugar. I don't use granulated sugar in my wow. brine. What does that do for you? It gives it a very subtle sweet flavor. Okay. And so what I do is, is I'll put, what, half a cup of coconut sugar 
a third of a cup of kosher salt. I don't know if you're noticing a theme here. I use a lot of kosher salt. Yeah, it's really and, the only kind of salt, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, what's funny is, is so I just had all the kids Wait, finish in the brine recipe first. You're about to give me I, I feel like this episode needs to come with, like, recipes lists. It will. It will. Uh, if, you, if we can, I, we can probably write one or two of these up, I guess, and we'll include uh, it in the show notes. Well, and then so what I do is I take those two. That's like my base, mm-hmm. and then I put smoked paprika, a couple tablespoons of that, a couple tablespoons of chili powder, some granula mm-hmm. or granulated garlic, pepper corns, obviously, some peppercorns, bay leaves, and cinnamon. Just like a teaspoon of cinnamon, not too much because it'll be overpowering. And then four cups of hot water in that and two cups of ice to cool it down. Right. And then you let it sit overnight in that. For any type of chicken or pork recipe, that is like, oh, it's it's perfect. Yeah, you let it sit overnight and then when you take it out, you rinse it all off to get all the excess off. I will put a dry rub that's essentially the same seasonings on it and then yeah smoke that for about eight to 12 hours depending on how much time you have and mm-hmm. it'll fall apart oh and i have those claw things so i get to I'll do the whole wolverine thing when i'm like breaking up the meat it's kind of cool i don't you know you've seen these no how do you oh, not have like, these yeah they're like claws and you hold them in your hand kind of like you know in your fists uh-huh. and then you can kind of shred them and you feel like wolverine yeah i'll send wow, you a- it feels it sounds dangerous <laughs> i just <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm a person who likes to cook myself. I recently, I did my first brining recently for some jerk chicken that I made my brother, mm-hmm. and it was just it was stellar. Oh, yeah. you, you smoke jerk chicken too, so I, I don't smoke jerk chicken, but I do smoke chickens. Like I'll do like a whole chicken. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, not necessarily whole chicken. What I do is I go to the butcher and he'll cut me up because they they sell the whole chickens and they'll yeah. cut it up for you. Yeah. And then I smoke the pieces and fried chicken. I'm really good at fried chicken. Yeah, fried yeah. chicken is I feel like the staples for like anyone who wants to just be like good at meat are like steak, obviously, burgers, fried chicken, and some kind of pork dish. I've been working on my bacon, my just homemade bacon. Nice. But I I don't know. I don't like a lot of pork. Bacon's kind of the only kind of pork that I care for. So I've always said if you told me I could only pick one animal to eat for the rest of my life, it would be pig. <laughs> Yeah, we talked about. Okay, yeah. so full disclosure to the audience this is our second time recording this because Justice accidentally deleted the master. So yeah. we talked about this last time, and you said pork was the only animal that you would eat if you could only eat one animal for the rest of your life. Yeah. And now you have to justify this insane idea because beef yeah. is just better. Beef is <laughs> not better. Like that is I, not I think I'm with with a pig as well. Think about how many different flavors you have. Like you have ham, you have pork chops, you have pork shoulder. I mean, but the two best kind bacon. like forms of meat are really? steak and burgers, and you don't get either of those from a pig. And then you told me about like bacon burgers or some. You made some kind of burger out of pork. Is that right? Well, you can do that. Yeah, you can. I mean, you can make a burger out of anything. It's really just grinding up meat. So you could take and grind up the meat. Yeah, but a turkey burger is objectively worse than a real oh, burger. Yeah. <laughs> see, I've never, I see people like eating turkey bacon and more power to you. If you want to eat turkey bacon, that's not bacon. No, actually less power to you. I'm pretty sure it's not <laughs> as much protein. <laughs> yeah, there, there's that. Yeah. But I mean, actually, it was funny as I came upstairs from working. I work in the basement. And so yeah. I came upstairs because I smelled bacon. 
And my wife actually, she's like, do you want me to cook you some bacon? Because they were making BLTs for lunch. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, yeah. And I'm thinking I'm getting like two pieces of bacon. No, my son brought me down six pieces of bacon. I was like, oh, now we're talking. That's, That's correct. Right there. <laughs> That's the only way to make a BLT. Six pieces at least. Oh, I didn't have uh, you know, uh, all that lettuce and tomato stuff. No, I don't get involved in all that. I just want the bacon. What is your favorite sandwich? Are we allowed to do this, Eric? You have to, like, I think, like, given that Johnny has already expressed interest in not sticking to the script, let's. We'll, okay. we're, we're off the rails. We'll we'll just keep there. Yeah. So, so favorite kind of sandwich? Let's go. Hmm. See, that's a tough call because so one of my things, obviously, I like meat. So I do mm-hmm. tend to fall towards the club because you do club. get all meat. The mm-hmm. club sandwich, you're going to mm-hmm. go sandwich. But the Cuban down in Florida where it's the ham, the smoked pork, pickles, yeah. and mustard. I tell you, one of my biggest pet peeves when I go to a restaurant and they have something on the menu called a Cuban, but then they try to fancy it up and put stuff on it. And I'm like, no, no, no. That's yeah. the best sandwich. I think one of the major culinary sins that I see taking place like all over the country right now is this move toward like trying to like fancify sandwiches like Mm -hmm. burgers like the straightforward smash burger with American cheese the best cheeseburger I ever had is at this bar it's a secret bar in Boston called drink it's literally called drink and you have to like know where it is to find it and they have a secret menu where they have 25 burgers that they sell every night and if you go in there if you can find this place and you go in and you get one of these burgers they get the wagyu beef flown in from Colorado like every day and it's just two smash patties American cheese and like fresh lettuce, like just the basics, right? And a really good bun. And that's the best burger I've ever had. And yeah. I think people try to, actually, it's funny. It's kind of like code. It is like code, yep. (laughs) Honestly, the biggest problem I see in development is the problem of being clever. Mm -hmm. And it's the same, and it seems like every industry. Like there used to be this place in Jacksonville called Jimmy's Fried Chicken. Mm Mm-hmm. You went there, there was fried chicken on the menu. Yep. And you had uh, creamed peas, mashed potatoes and gravy, and biscuits. Yep. That's it. There was, there was no flair. Well, and fried was, chicken, uh, right? Yeah. It's, it okay. was the best fried chicken that you It was Jimmy's Buttermilk Fried Chicken. Yeah. And that's it. And that you went there and you got that. Like, uh, I love being in combat. I do. I really do. Yeah, but like yeah. a restaurant and they'll be like, oh, it's our twist or our take. No, I don't want your take. I want the real thing. Like, you, you know I, what's even worse? This other fad that's even worse? Fusion. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Can fusion stop? It's not yeah. fusion. It's confusion. Yeah. Okay. Like get it out of here. I don't need Thai burgers. Right. I don't need Italian tacos <laughs> so one thing i saw recently that's maybe a take on fusion that you would be interested in uh, there's a an udon shop in tokyo that could no longer serve udon because of lockdowns and so they did udon burgers instead so it was like everything but the soup and like the buns were like udon noodles that were like it actually, you can't, no one can see this, but they're grimacing. It like, it actually looked pretty good. I'm not an Udon fan to begin with, but uh, yeah, dude, like what? I do think that there's something 
and maybe it is just like a showing off sort of thing, but like kind of bringing a background of code. Like one of my big pet peeves is being clever. And I'm just as guilty of it sometimes, mm-hmm. but a lot of times it's like, I'll write code and I'm like, oh, wow, man, that's really clever. All right, let me go rewrite that so it's not as clever because in six yeah. months, I have no idea what I just wrote, you know? And I mean, I think, you know, a lot of times cleverness arises out of, you know, and I've talked to Dave Thomas about this. I think one of the biggest things that got wrong is the misinterpretation of dry. Mm. Like. I've seen code where people dried up the code, but they make it so that like it's damn near unusable because you don't even know what it's supposed to do. Yeah. And that's missing the whole point of dry. Yeah. Dry has nothing to do with the code itself. It has to do with business logic. Mm-hmm. So you want to dry up your business logic so that the idea is that if you have, you know, a piece of code that is supposed to be processing a certain, you know, line of business logic. That isn't replicated across the system because then mm. you're going to run into issues when that logic needs to change. Right. Whereas if you're drying up code, you get it to a point where, yes, it could generically work for everything, but nobody understands how it's supposed to work. So I think that that's one of those traps that people fall into with dry code. Mm. That, you know, they use that opportunity to, to be clever about things. Yeah. And what happens is this six months later, they have no idea what that was supposed to do or why they did it that way and they lose it. And so I think that's, and I've caught myself doing it just as bad. So it's not like I'm like, Oh, everybody's doing this, but me, no, I do it too. But I try, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years now and I try to catch it now earlier on in the process. Do you think this, I feel like there's a trend, especially in front end programming toward like, I don't know what the word would be componentizing everything do you see this where like suddenly where you would have like views that might have like similar looking things now it's like you just have folders of components and you have to like search through folders of components and find the component that's being used in a given place as opposed to like just writing the thing for the view it's kind of the same thing where people it's like preemptive not repeating yourself but then what ends up happening is you get this crazy architecture that requires a lot of file switching to understand what's going on yeah I do. And I think that it's like anything else. It's, I think you can take anything to an extreme. Right. Like, obviously, you know, for years we've had reusable components. Right. I mean, the nice thing about functional programming in general is that you can kind of tie everything in together because you have functions that as long as you pass the same thing in and expect the same value out, you can. But I've seen that even taken to an extreme where you have to completely understand what's in the function to know what to even pass into the function. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay. But at the same time, I look at things like, you know, going back to the early days of Phoenix, you know, Phoenix started out as just a router. Right. And I talked to Chris, like I have, I think the second commit or something in Phoenix, because I think I put the resources in or something, if I remember correctly. But before it became what it is, you know, what, I would have liked is I would have liked to been componentized where you had a router, you know, you had a view engine, you know, everything else should just be a pure Elixir application. Like that's really all you need, you know, something to deal with the views, but more like piecemeal. Like I was never a big fan of like the, the generators from the get go. Mm -hmm. And actually Mm -hmm. I remember it came up. This is probably a few years ago with the generators. You know, you'd see code, like I do code reviews for people or help people. And they're like, you know, this looks just like Rails. I was like, well, that's because you're sticking all the stuff in the controller. And really, in a good Rails project, you shouldn't be sticking all the stuff in the controller anyway. 
And they're like, well, that's how the docs say to do it. Because originally, yeah, in the mm. like you would generate it and it would have repo calls in your controller. Mm. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't know. I kind of go back, but like it's just because somebody says something doesn't mean that's the way you should do it. Like if yeah. you know better, if you know that that shouldn't go there, <laughs> you shouldn't put it there. It doesn't matter what something says, you know. And so, you know, extracting that out to where you have, you know, the controllers really should be very thin. They should be routing information between your domain models, which I want to be very specific about that because that term model has been kind of butchered to death. Mm. But the domain model, I think Phoenix calls them context now or something like that. But the idea is that you're routing information between that and to a view. Yeah. A lot of times when I use Phoenix, definitely for like my own projects and things like that, there is nothing in my Phoenix app other than the routes to controllers that call into another application and, you know, whatever views have to be displayed. I treat Phoenix very much as my presentation layer for my applications. Mm. There's no business logic tied up in there. You know, like I said, I've been doing this for 20 years and I go back to the old structures of your data access layer, your business logic layer, and your presentation layer, and none Mm -hmm. shall talk to each other. Or none shall trespass on each other's turf, I should say. Because when you design things like that, it's funny is when I look back, the reason I started doing that was under the premise of, well, if I ever wanted to switch out my presentation layer, I could switch out my presentation layer and Mm. put in a new presentation layer in front of them. That never happens. Like, that's just not, you don't do that. You know, it's not like you're going to all of a sudden, you could go to an API, Maybe, but I mean, realistically, once projects start getting ahead of steam, unless you do a full rewrite, you're probably going to keep that same structure. Mm-hmm. But the nice thing is, is when you break the application up into like logical units like that, when you do do that rewrite, you can like look at individual pieces and see what modif- needs modified. Maybe you don't need to modify the presentation layer at all. Mm-hmm. You just need to change business logic. You know, maybe the data access layer, none of your data structures are going to change. And so you keep the data access layer intact and you change the business logic. But maybe the presentations, you know, are are similar. But I think, you know, what ends up happening, and this doesn't mean you have to do it in an umbrella project either. I know that comes up a lot. Well, should you use an umbrella project or shouldn't you use an umbrella project? Honestly, I've done both and it really is kind of up to you. So umbrellas came up recently on the show so they've come up a lot on the show and most of the time when it comes up it's not positive is that right eric yeah i've seen like three examples of people liking it we actually got listener feedback that someone was like oh i heard you talking about umbrellas and this is why i like them (laughs) and then joanna we gotta read that on the show yeah her episode she talked about enjoying them as long as you treated it as not a separation of concerns, I think it was like, because like once those applications are loaded, they can talk to each other willy nilly and like nothing's going to stop them. Well, and, so, and she said that it was originally designed to be a development tool and not really run in production. I think right? it was, it was a way to break your app apart for running separately in production or, or something. Yeah. We just recorded it. Not too long ago, and it's already... We're going to give away the secret sauce. Oh, but no, because this episode will come (laughs) out after. Well, you know, 
if you don't know what we're talking about, just go back and listen to John's episode. <laughs> What's funny about Umbrella, as soon as I saw Umbrella Projects, I was reminded of back in my .NET days, you had a solution. And in your solution, you had multiple projects. And when you built the solution, it built all the projects. It's the same concept. Hmm. And to me, it's, I don't want to say people that are fighting it so much, maybe they're doing it wrong, but maybe they're doing it wrong because I've had... Well, I, yeah, I was definitely doing it wrong. The one project we did, like it just wasn't worth doing for what we... Because like, I feel like there's a certain size of project that an Umbrella app makes sense and that project was not it. Yeah, a lot of it depends on... And I go back to this. This is one of my things. Anytime people get dogmatic about anything, mm. I kind of question it. Mm. Because really, it's about what works good for the team. Mm. Like if the team of developers is comfortable with an umbrella project, they know how to work in an umbrella project, they know how to maintain good fences between the neighbors and things like that, it's not a problem. If the team doesn't feel comfortable with that, but they feel comfortable putting everything in there and they can maintain good fences between their neighbors, then that's fine too. And I use that, that's something I kind of talk about with like abstractions, like, you know, having good fences. You know, your APIs should all, and when I say API, I'm talking about any public interface to a module or an application or anything. If you're maintaining those contracts, then that's a good fence. Mm. You know, you have a good communication path. You should be able to change what's behind that. You know, you should be able to put pink flamingos in your yard if you want. Your neighbors don't have to see them. You know, I'm looking at your shirt. That's what. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Hey, uh, shout out Mux. I like your pocket tees. Keep it yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> potential sponsor that's what it is i wanted to ask a question and it's just escaped me i'm also kind of thinking about this whole concept of like how one should go about architecting as they develop and like on one hand i see this thing where people kind of over engineer in the beginning by doing this like two componentized I don't, that's not the right word, but that's the verb that I'm making up. You know, it's too componentized, right? It's like too much nested file structures, too much sort of me having to go and like dig through what you've done. And it's not exactly intuitive because it's like based on this set of arbitrary abstractions that you made up. But then on the other hand, you can't just like wing it, can you? I don't know the wing it part. Like, I think that... I'll go back to the reason wing it, like, meaning I, like solve problems without like patterns in you, the broader architectural base. So that goes back to the dogmatic conversation. Mm. I never learned design patterns. Mm. What's funny is, is I kind of thought I discovered a few of them myself until mm -hmm. I realized somebody else had done that. Cause a lot of what patterns is, is, you know, as humans we're like, you know, we're trained to find patterns and things. And so, you know, once we recognize a pattern, we can talk about it. To me, design patterns, you never sit down and go, you know, we should do factory pattern here. Mm -hmm. But if I said, oh, it's like factory pattern, you would know what I'm talking about. Right. So it's, you know, I think. Are we, we using Java all of a sudden? Well, I'm, just, I'm throwing out the design patterns that I know. Uh, what is, I'm throwing so so for someone who doesn't know, you know what like what, what, what is the factory pattern? So the factory pattern is basically being able to replicate objects based on like, you know, back in the old Java days, like you'd have an uh, interface, which technically you kind of have behaviors in Elixir. And so the idea is you should be able to replicate that using those behaviors. And so all those objects act the same. Hmm. So like they would all have the same kind of behaviors. They might do something different. 
but those behaviors would be the same across board. And so you could generate multiple of them with a kind of a base interface, I think is what Java and .NET called them. I think actually, oh man, now you're having me go back to my .NET days. I'm pretty sure they were interfaces in Java and I believe they were interfaces in, but yeah, anyway, so like you can replicate things. So the same behavior across multiple types of objects or classes. But a lot of those, there was actually a book a few years ago, I think it was a Prague Prague book called Design Patterns for Functional Programming. And what it did was it kind of went through some of the object-oriented design patterns and kind of showed how they actually apply in functional programming and things like that. It's been a while. It's been several years now. So, But yeah, really, design patterns are a way of communicating. And honestly, when's the last time you sat down and talked about design patterns at work, like when you're actually working on something? We don't talk about, like the design patterns, you know, like the one that people write about, but we talk about patterns within the applications that we're writing a lot. So we'll say like, someone will say, how do I do this? And I'll say, well, we kind of have a pattern in this application of doing it in this way. Mm. And then they'll just kind of do that. And we don't have too many problems with that happening, except for sometimes code duplication. So, you know, I don't know. So I've seen extractions of code Mm -hmm. where like common functionality gets abstracted out mm-hmm. into like so an elixir project say like it gets abstracted out into a module so that it can be reused across projects and generally what happens is is it's used in that one project and it isn't necessarily reused across multiple projects and then the problem with that is so I, I talk about like tribal knowledge so like when you sit down on an application they've done things a certain way. Right. You have to learn how they did that. Mm-hmm. And if they do that outside the norm, I go back to Phoenix. Honestly, I use Phoenix all the time. The reason I use Phoenix is because I can talk about Phoenix with you or with Eric, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right. If I rolled my own, then I would have to explain to you how mine worked. Right. So the idea is, you know, you have libraries like Ecto, you have libraries like Phoenix, which is great. Because the patterns that come out in those applications, you can talk across any team, across anything. Now, Mm. when you start like kind of veering from those patterns and start kind of doing things your own way, now you have to explain how that works to somebody else. I know that I've seen things that are like, you know, you go to implement something and so you go write out all the code and then somebody will step in and go, oh, well, we have this module over here named something that doesn't make sense that you should use to call these functions. It's like, oh, wait, hold on. How would I have known that's tribal knowledge? How would I have known to go look for that without just, you know, especially larger projects? I've seen stuff buried in like larger projects, you know, maybe like examples around like special way of logging information. Mm. You know, they have, instead of just calling logger, there's a module that has logger functions that calls logger, but does some decorating to the message. And it's like, you know, that's great, but that's tribal knowledge that you have to share as you're working on the project. Whereas if you just made a logger call, you know, now where that does help is say you always want to return very similar styled messages. Errors are a perfect example. Like, you know, I've used modules that have, you know, various functions that all return error messages, but they have a standardized format. Mm. 
So yes, I could just call logger or whatever, but I want the error message to be very specific so that they're always the same. So that's a case. But then that's one of those things when we sit down on a project together, I'm going to say, oh, when you have an error, call this module over here because it's going to give you the right format for those errors. So it does help me distill it down because you said you don't really have any dogmas, but there's got to be some kind of like when you're making decisions on the day to day, there must be some kind of like North Star that you are looking at as like, well, like all other things being equal, this is what I'm aiming for. Maybe it's like readability or maybe it's modularity. Like, what are you like primarily thinking about when you're putting together an application? Does it work? I think okay, let's favorite, call that a constraint of the job, right? That, my favorite meme of all time has got to be that Pirates of the Caribbean one mm-hmm. where whatever the Admiral is like, that has got to be the worst code that I've ever seen run. And Jack Sparrow's, but it runs. <laughs> <laughs> but no, in, in all seriousness, like I, I do try to, my first goal when I write code is to make it work. Obviously you want to, and, and this goes back to, I think the Joe Armstrong quote, you know, make it work, make it beautiful, then make it fast. And Mm. if you make it work and it's beautiful, chances are it'll be fast enough. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times when I sit down, if I'm trying to put a feature in, I want to do the minimal amount of work to make that work. But at the same time, I want it to be readable enough and quote, quote, beautiful enough that in six months, if I haven't seen that code, I'm going to be like, okay, yeah, I know exactly what I was doing there. Mm -hmm. And how do you apply that to like the larger problem of like code organization? Well, I think that's where I fall back into the like putting things where they logically belong. Okay. You know, like data access layer. Yeah. I know that if I go into that part of the project, everything's going to be around like data access. One of the things, like perfect example is schema files for like Ecto. Mm-hmm. The only thing that I put in my schema file is the schema definition. And I might have a change set, but that change set, the only thing it really does is does the cast and any required checks or anything like that. Hmm. any business logic, I would separate that out. So like, you know, I think uh, if there's any calculation, which to me, I, I wouldn't, that's not part of the change set. The change set is literally for mapping that data coming into the schema that's going to the database. If you're adding other things to it, then you're overcomplicating it and you're burying logic in it. Whereas, you know, say I have something like, you know, customer, you know, the customer schema is going to have the scheme information and a change set that allows me to transfer customer data into an object that the database can accept. But I might have a module called create customer that create customer takes in a set of parameters that are needed to create that customer. Maybe the change set lives in there to where on creating a customer, these certain things have to happen. And then there might be a, you know, create call. So, you know, that that change set might be private. You don't really call it. You just pass in parameters to create. Create then calls the change set that starts by calling the change set for the schema and then applies anything afterwards. You know, so that you now I have something I know when I'm creating a customer, I have that in that place. Mm. If I want to, I don't have to go digging around. I don't have to look through the schema file. I have to figure out which change and all my repo calls are in one place. So I don't, you know, from a controller at that point, you're just going to call create customer dot, you know, whatever, create, you know, whatever you want to call it. And then it's going to actually execute and do its thing and then return something back. And then the controller itself can then send, 
whatever response it needs. Now, in the case of maybe you have something more complicated, say, you know, a purchase order. So, you know, you're creating a purchase order. Well, there's multiple elements in that. Well, so create a purchase order might have to call into create customer as part of that. Might have to create, you know, an address, you know, whatever it ends up, other fields that are on there. But that's in its own module. Right. So, yeah, it might call into those other things. But I know when I want to know what the database schema looks like, I can go into the schema file and I can see that. When I want to know how to create a customer, I can go into the create customer module and see how to do that. Mm. And when I want to create a purchase order, I can go in and to the purchase order and see how that's done. Things aren't scattered everywhere. Things aren't like, you know, I've, I've seen cases where people put things in the chain sets to that if something else calls the chain set, it might trigger a calculation somewhere. And it's like, oh, hold on. I don't want to do that. I just want to write to the database. So then I have to write another chain set. Right. Whereas really that kind of stuff shouldn't be in there. Or in my opinion, it shouldn't be. Hmm. I want to say I agree. I agree with the overall philosophy. And you're also much more experienced than me, so I'm not going to criticize it. (laughs) I make mistakes every single day. I will tell you, it doesn't matter how long you've been doing it. It doesn't matter how long you've been doing this. And there's no such thing as a perfect code base. Yeah. That's why I try not to be like, I see people on Twitter. Oh, I can't believe they did this. This should be done this way. It varies. Some projects are different. You don't know what the circuit. I go into things thinking that every developer has the best intentions. Nobody goes in to work that day and says, I'm going to write the shittiest code that I can write. Excuse my language, by the way. But I'm going to write the worst code that I can write just to see what happens. Like everybody has the best intentions. Now they might not, yes. get <laughs> right. but that's what code reviews are for. And then you can come back and say, "Hey, we should do it differently," or some. You don't understand the pressures they're on to write that code, what the parameters are around writing that code, what the business requirements for writing that code. So I do agree with you, sort of like in spirit. Like at Smart Logic, we I've got a really smart team where everyone is in alignment behind this idea of like quality code and collaborative code where people are looking at it and that like the process is correct. Right. And we also inherit a lot of projects. Mm-hmm. And when you're inheriting projects is I think when you see the kind of like baffling design decisions that people have made. And I guess I'm trying to like hone in on like, what are like the rules of thumb that, people especially like less experienced programmers can sort of apply to their thinking as they go through their development cycle and also what are like the kind of cardinal sins like one that you said was like being too clever like that i see all the time like it almost seems as if like trying to outsmart the future is what creates more problems for the future than any other single thing that people try to do and we are also almost out of time so i feel like we could talk about this a lot. I want to give you time to respond to that and also to plug any of your projects, any shameless self-promotion, where you work, et cetera. Yeah. So, well, let me answer that real quick. So I think that there's a time and a place for everything. Mm -hmm. When I'm writing code that's production code or work code that's like going to go out, dogmatic probably sounds bad, but like I'm very careful about what I'm writing and what I'm reading because other people are reading it. On side projects or projects if the parameters lean towards that, I'm experimental. I write a lot of code, even recently, that I would never put into production. 
for a lot of reasons. For one, I think that especially as young developers, if I tell you you need to write code this way and you don't know why you need to write code that way, well, you're never going to really learn. You just mm-hmm. know that I have, to, I have this pattern that I have to repeat. But if you get out there and you experiment and you try things, you know, like one time I tried to write a broker, but one time I tried to write an SMTP at library, like low level opening up the connection, sending each phrase across the connection. I would never put it in Hello. production. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You do the little handshake and everything like that and send your SMTP. But like I would never put it into production necessarily, but it taught me so much. And I think that's one of the things that really, when I got into Elixir, really was the thing that kind of hooked me, was there was so many things not written. Like I had the opportunity to write all these things, and I had the opportunity to make mistakes, and I had the opportunity you know, to try to figure things out. Whereas a lot of times, you know, in your day job, you don't. Like you have to perform. You have to write good code. You don't always get an explanation for why you did something wrong. So if you take the time in side projects that go nowhere, write bad code, write a lot of bad code, because that's going to show you how to write good code or why you should write good code. You know, the first time you go to write something and it's so clever that you can't figure it out in a few weeks, you're going to realize I probably shouldn't be writing clever code. Or the first time you have to explain it. <laughs> that's my favorite. Before we move too far from this, the one thing I do want to call people out on is really bad commit messages. We've inherited projects that have, it's like, I hate you, other developer name. <laughs> like, that was the commit message. <laughs> and well, it's like, one thing, wow. <laughs> one thing that I will, I will say is a lot of times when I start projects, I'll come up with a clever quote for that initial commit. You know, I've used make it so, which I actually think I got that from Chris McCord. But, you know, like, look up quotes on beginning projects and things like that or inspirational quotes and use those. Because it's the initial quote or initial commit. It doesn't. Now, I am a firm advocate of, I think this works. Maybe <laughs> this I'm pretty sure I got it this time. Take 40 yeah, seconds. I do yeah. that a lot. Why? Like, yeah. It's like I fixed it for real this time. <laughs> like, WTF, no, no, now. why is it working? <laughs> I literally did that today. So. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, those are like, you can squash those away. It's just funny to like be digging through a, an old project and just like see this like, train of thought or like their mental state is forever recorded in this project as they're like trying I to fix things. Had, this may or may not have been for work, but <laughs> someone committed like comments that were like, I finally found it. Here's where the problem was. And I was like, I don't need those comments to be committed. Like, <laughs> like no one who reads that in the future is going to even get like what that is referring to. It was almost like they had commented like literally for me to read, but it was in the code. Like they were, uh, they were so happy that they got it. Yeah, it was really funny. I was like, "Yeah, you're gonna have to." Like, this and can't. They see that message. It's gonna put a little smile on their face. <laughs> yeah, you know, I I love deleting people's comments that they leave, especially to dos. Just goodbye. <laughs> well, do you want to uh, plug anything or shameless self promotion? Anything like that? You're welcome to. You know what. I'm plugging on a balanced life. How about that? Like, I think that, you know, I spent a lot of years, I've been doing this for 20 years. I've been in the Elixir community for like six or so, maybe seven years now. I don't, I don't remember exactly. I guess it's about, yeah, seven years. Cause I know it was at least 2013 and it was 2020. So about seven years. 
man, I was churning constantly, like, you know, either trying to speak at conferences or speaking at conferences and travel and, you know, doing the Elixir Fountain before that, you know, doing the Elixir Fountain as a newsletter. And, you know, I kind of got caught up in the whole race of things. And, you know, recently all my kids, I have what, seven kids. They all came to visit us and, you know, just taking the time and taking some time away and, you know, spending some time with them. And, you know, I've seen different people on Twitter now talking about, you know, oh, I'm, you know, working all these hours. Nobody gives a shit in three years that you stayed up late. And I'm just kind of stealing this. I'm paraphrasing it. But I guarantee your kid's going to remember that you missed their play because you worked late. Oh. I'm serious. I saw That's that and really... I was like, I saw that a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's a lot of nights I worked late and, uh, you know, I didn't necessarily miss anything like an event because I always made sure I went to events. But I mean, I know I missed time just playing video games with my son to work. And like, I don't even remember what the hell I was working on. I don't remember why I was working on it, but I guarantee my son remembers the times that I didn't sit down and play video games with him for an hour, you know? So yeah, just, I hope people out there kind of can get back to focusing on balance. I think a lot of this with this pandemic, just spending time that you didn't spend before. And, you know, I think that that's on one hand, I don't want to say it's a good thing because I know a lot of people die and stuff like that, but maybe society needed a bit of a reset to say, Hey, Work isn't everything. Getting out mm. and spending money isn't everything. You right. should spend time with your family. Eat dinner mm. with your family. Do things like that, you know? Yeah. So that's my hot take. Well, I really appreciate it, Johnny. And I think that it is really important for us to try to find the good in everything, even the bad things that happen. So with that, this has been another episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you. Johnny Wynn for coming on to the show. We would love to have you back again for next season. Thank you to my co-host, Eric Ostrich. Once again, I'm Justice Eben. Elixir Wizards is a smart logic podcast here at Smart Logic. We're always looking to take on new projects, building web apps in Elixir, Rails, React, infrastructure projects using Kubernetes, and mobile apps using React Native. We'd love to hear from you if you have a project we could help you with. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, so add us on all of those. You can also find me personally at Justice Eben and Eric at Eric Ostrich and join us again next week on Elixir Wizards for more system and application architecture. <laughs>